0: Philip. Yes, Rob. It is time. Roll the 20-sided die of destiny. It
1: appears to be a natural 20. Egad! So it begins. You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast, where your podcast for all things Grimdark interview with R.A. Salvatore, part one. I'm your host, writer, blogger, and producer, Rob Matheny.
0: And I am Philip Overby.
1: And we are back with an epic episode of Epicness. And epic proportions, we have the one and only R.A. Salvatore on the show today, a man that really needs no introduction, a man who is a legend amongst our contemporaries. We did roll a natural 20 on the Destiny die, and we were very fortunate to get uh, Bob on the show, and it was a fantastic conversation, and we are delighted to let you folks tune in and hear what Bob had to say. Uh, we are here to talk about Arc Mage. It's his brand new novel where Drizzt returns to the Underdark. That hit store shelves September 1st so go pick up your copy. We are giving away two copies as well so listen at the end of the show. We'll tell you how you can pick up a copy of Arc Mage. Philip are you excited? I mean this was a pretty big deal.
0: Yeah it was we were pretty hyped the whole month leading up to this interview, so it was very cool to sit down with Bob and talk about various aspects of his career and his new book, Archmage, and various topics about publishing and writing and all sorts of awesome goodness. Very surreal to talk to him after reading his books for years and years, so very, very cool for him to come on the show and talk to us.
1: Yeah, my perspective with this interview is that, uh, you know, we are honored to sit at the feet of a master storyteller. Bob Salvatore is a class act, a true professor of the fantastic. He had even mentioned this during our conversation, that some people will wait in line to talk to him for hours. And they only get a few minutes to chat with him just because there's so many people in line. they got to have to keep the line moving. But Phil and I have the privilege of hanging out with Bob for 75 minutes to speak with him. And for Phil and I, it's going to be an experience that we will never forget. It's the highlight of my summer, for sure. We don't want to waste any time. We're going to get right into the interview. Give it a listen. At the end of the show, you can find out how you can win a copy of Archmage. And thanks again to Bob and Wizards of the Coasts for hooking us up. And we do hope you enjoy the conversation.
0: Unless you've been living under a rock, you've most certainly heard of today's special guest. He's a New York Times best-selling fantasy author of multiple series, including the Demon Wars Saga, Cleric Quintet, the Saga of the First King, and the Legend of Dritz series, featuring one of the most beloved and recognizable characters in all of fantasy, the Dark Elf Ranger, Dritz Do'Urden of Dermond Bernan, the Ninth House of Menzo Barenzan. Dritz's journeys have been immortalized in novels, short stories, audiobooks, graphic novels, and video games, making his impact known over the course of 25 plus years. On a personal note, the first fantasy series I ever bought with my own money was the Cleric Quintet. I read each novel back to back, carrying them to school, family functions, and reading them before bed. These books introduced me to the wonders of fantasy and I've never turned back. Our guest has also been instrumental in creating modern games such as Demon Stone and Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, in addition to the soon-to-be-released Dungeons & Dragons tabletop adventure Out of the Abyss for sale on September 15th. His highly anticipated upcoming novel, Archmage, book one in the Homecoming series, was released on September 1st and continues the ever-expanding legend of Dritz as he returns home to face new and familiar dangers in the Underdark. An icon in the realm of fantasy fiction, he made dual-wielding scimitars the most badass thing on Earth, or any planet, and made me want a magical panther as my best friend. Without further ado, it is truly a privilege and an honor to welcome to the Grim Tidings podcast, the one, the only, R.A. Salvatore.
1: Hey there! Welcome to the show, R.A. Salvatore. We are glad to have you on the program. We've been looking forward to your appearance for months now. Uh, the Grimdark community is very excited to to have you with us, so Thank you so much for joining us. You've sold over 10 million books. You've, you're a master storyteller. You've had an illustrious career, and your fiction has inspired uh, millions of readers. And uh, can't say enough. Uh, thank you for, for joining us on the, on the program today. It's truly an honor, sir.
2: Well, it's absolutely my pleasure. And the funniest thing about this is because it's been over so many years, every time I go on the show, I hear I've sold a different
1: number of books. <laughs> I like, 10 million? it goes up, not down. <laughs> of course. Well, we're here today definitely to talk about archmage it's your latest novel it was released on september 1st if you could just tell us about archmage and where do we pick up with drist in this new novel
2: well they always uh, break my books up into trilogies and quartets and quintets and give them different series names and everything but with the dark elf books in fact with all of my forgotten realms books i've thought of as one long adventure just you know it's almost like writing the next series the next season of a tv show for me at this point archmage picks up and I'm arguing about the name, by the way. I don't know if it's Archmage or Archmage. I thought it was Archmage, and I was all ready to go with that. And then my wife said, yeah, but what about an Archbishop? So, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we'll go with Archmage for this one. So this book basically picks up right after Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf. And that was the was book three of the Companions Codex, which followed the Companions, which followed the you know one series after another. And... Where we're at now is there's been this huge war, the war is over, but really the adventure from is just beginning because out of the war Dritz's friend has an army and he's ready to go because he wants to take back his homeland. So you've got about 18 different things going on here. You've got Dritz and his friends coming for the homeland. You've got certain dark elves who want to kill Dritz then claim his head as a trophy for the Spider Queen finding out where he's going to be and plotting to get him. You've got a drow family sitting in the way of of the dwarves getting their homeland, and you've got the Archmage who's kind of getting full of himself with additional powers and maybe going a little too far. And on top of that, you've got abyssal creatures planning something. (laughs) So there's a lot going on. It all comes crashing together in the upper tunnels of the Underdark in this book, soon to be the lower tunnels of the Underdark in the next book, but lots of fights.
1: Excellent. Well, we lo- we definitely love fight scenes and you are no doubt noted amongst our peers with creating some of the most illustrious and, and beautiful battle scenes ever to permeate fantasy fiction. So two thumbs up for you on that one, Bob. Um, is it, is it refreshing at to at least two? There's at least two in this book
2: that I think I have to mark in my top 10. Really? A personal battle and a big scale battle. Oh yeah. I had a lot of fun with
1: this book. Yeah, I was going to say, was it was it fun to be able to to be back in the Underdark and be back writing about Drist and, and the Drow and get back to the Forgotten Realms universe? Absolutely. Um, the thing I always like about writing the Dark Elves, especially the
2: society of the Dark Elves, is you see what's going on, but then you know that something's going on beneath what's going on. So you go and you try and sort that out. But while you're doing that, you find out that about 10 different people are affecting that. So you try to figure out what their motivations are. And it's like, you know, it's that peeling the onion thing. So what seems like a very simplistic top level story and motivation is really much deeper And you just keep going deeper and deeper into it with different characters. And I uncover it as I'm writing. I don't start out thinking there's this elaborate plot. I just kind of dig down into the layers after I know what's going on. It's very strange like that. uh, But it makes it fun for me to, to write about the draw because it's almost like investigating you know, a cave or something, and you find side tunnels that you didn't expect.
1: Yeah, I can imagine so, with a with a franchise like this, usually when you're working with publishers like Wizards of the Coast, do you have to deliver a full outline before you dive into the novel, or is it more of a seat-of-the-pants type of thing with coming up with the new trilogy?
2: Oh, no, I have to deliver an outline, then I start writing and throw it away.
1: <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I'm Interesting.
2: Not I have, to have certain beat points because I've told them where I'm going. Um, But that's very general terms. And every now and then they'll ask me to put things in the book. Like, you know, you're doing Neverwinter. Are you going to be anywhere near the Sword Coast? Yeah, well, can you blow up Neverwinter? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know, those type of things. So as we go through the series in in Homecoming, the first two books kind of bookend the Rage of Demons storyline that's going on at Wizards. So they asked me to do something in the first book and then do something in the second book. There are events that happen in the books, but they aren't the books. They're just events. Which I was more than happy to oblige because that's the best thing about working in a shared world is when other people bring in really creative things that they want you to do, they can really challenge you. Um, Like in the next book, they said, we need this to happen in the book. And I looked at what they wanted. I said, I can't do that. And they said, yeah, we know you can do that. And I'm like, there's no way I can pull that off. Look at what you're asking me to do. And I said, all right, let me see what I can come up with. And and sure enough, it, it, it challenged me. It forced me to get there. But again, these are the events, kind of the dressing on the book. The cake of the book is about the characters, and they leave me alone in that.
0: So I live in Japan now, and the first time I returned to the United States, I had a really bad reverse culture shock. Uh, (laughs) So especially, like, I was really happy to see Taco Bell and Hardee's and these kind of, like, fast food places I took for granted. But since Dritz has been away from the Underdark for for a while now, does he experience any sort of reverse culture shock uh, returning back home?
2: Um, As the series goes on unbelievably so. Yeah. Imagine if everything you you know, suddenly you came to wonder if any of it was actually real. If you've been looking at the world through a prism you didn't expect and somebody finally removed that glass. This series puts Dritz in an emotional place I have never had him before. And uh, it, it was challenging, but it was something I knew needed to be done in this series. And uh, reverse culture shock doesn't even scratch the surface <laughs> of what happens to him. It, it was very cool to write about, I, I have to say
0: that. When's the last time you've written about the, the Underdark? Has it has it been recent?
2: Yeah, the, um, it, it's been a side event in several of the more recent books. The Dark Elves have become more and more involved. But the last time I really focused on it was probably many years ago um, where I've actually been in, in Menzo Berendon with um, with m- the major characters for an extended length of time. Um, I mean, we, we saw a bit of it in the last series with the kind of the new leadership that's going on in, in the Dark Elf City and, and some of the things she's doing. Because they're, they're the ones that organized the War in the Silver Marches. So we've been there with them. But as far as having the bulk of the book there, um, no, it's been a long time. Maybe Starless Night, which was 1993, 4? Oh, wow. Yeah. I've been doing this for a long
1: time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, 1982, I was uh, I was two years old uh, when you started putting a pen to the paper uh, on a serious note, and then you've been writing full-time since 1990. Right.
2: 1982
1: is when I, I, I had just
2: finished up college, and I'd fallen in love with fantasy fiction, and I ran out of books to read. So I, I, w- I was working as a bouncer in the nightclub. I'd come home at 1 in the morning or 2 in the morning, depending which club I was working at, and I would um, light the candles in my room, put on Tusk, Fleetwood Max Tusk album, Get out my spiral notebook, and I wrote a book called Echoes of the Fourth Magic. And that book is what got me the audition to do the second Forgotten Realms book,
1: The Crystal Shard, in 1987. So it's been a lot of years. And when you were writing The Crystal Shard, did you ever think that this Drizzt character that you were just conceptualizing would go on to be the phenomenon that it is today? Oh, God, no. I, at that
2: point, I was just thinking, if I can just publish one book, I'll be happy. You know, that was before the Internet, so you couldn't self-publish. That wasn't an option back then, unless you wanted to spend $20,000, and I didn't have $20,000. I was working a full-time job. I had two kids and a third kid on the way. I was rising through the ranks of a high-tech company in the finance field. I thought I'd write one book, and that would be great. And I put a little hook in at the end of the book when the halfling goes to the town, Regis goes to the town, and he sees this assassin guy, Adamus Centrari. It was just a hook hoping that maybe they'd give me another book someday. But no, I don't think I really came to understand the effect and and the success that Dritz was having until after I wrote The Halfling's Gem, I was planning on writing a fourth book. They had already asked me for three. I figured they might come back for a fourth. I was still working full time. And I, I was thinking, you know, the fourth book would be about retaking mithril hall the dwarven land and the problem was they said no 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 we're gonna go away we're done with these characters we're gonna go on to something else even if you're writing it you know if you're gonna keep writing for us we're gonna send you in a different direction so just tie everything up so I did in the epilogue of the halflings gem I tied everything up and I thought I was done with the character and then um, the book came out and they did really well and they hit the New York Times list that was the first time for me it was uh, February of 1990 and the publisher called up and said You know, we want you back and we want to do a trilogy this time. And I'm like, okay, so where are we going to do this one? You know, What do you want me me to try to accomplish in this one? He said, well, we're getting a lot of mail and people want to know where this dark elf came from. And that's when I knew that because I knew he was special to me. I knew he was special to me the first time I wrote him. He wasn't in the original outline of the book. It was supposed to be about Wolfgar. But through a series of weird circumstances that I've detailed way too many times. So anyone (laughs) listening can go find it. Any way they want, including in the forward to the Dark Elf trilogy uh, in the omnibus edition. Um, I came up with this Dark Elf character to, to run as a sidekick for Wolfgar. But the first, when I actually got the won the audition and, and got the second book, the first chapter I was writing had this Dark Elf running across the tundra. And he got jumped by some yetis. And he got rescued by his friend, the dwarf. And I think on page two, I knew the book wasn't about Wolfgar, it was about Drift. And it just hit me in this character. All of a sudden, I started seeing or hearing so much more from this character in my head that I knew he became very, very special to me. You know, so when they said we want to go back into a trilogy about where he came from, it was like validation that my instincts were right because this guy had become so important to me. And now I find out that all these readers are writing letters to TSR. And again, this was before the Internet. So this, these were actually writing letters and putting stamps on them and sending them to TSR. And they had a bunch of them saying, you know, more, where did this guy come from? Who is this guy? And, and that's when I realized that, you know, I might be able to get a few more books out of them. And, uh, but even after I wrote the Dark Elf trilogy, TSR turned me away from Dritz. And now we we're going to do the Cleric Quintet. And it was in the middle of the Cleric Quintet. When I got a phone call, and they said I got good news and bad news. And they said, okay, what's the good news? And they said, "Um, Walden Books wants a hardcover, and they want it to be from you. And it's got to be about the Dark Elf. So we want you to put the Clara Quintet aside for a little bit and do the Dark Elf. Go back. And I said, you know, a hardcover book, this is huge. I mean, hardcover books are, that's when you you can actually think about quitting your job, you know, and and really know that you're going to be okay. And I said, well, what could possibly be the bad news? And they said, we need it in six weeks. <laughs> so, I had to write the legacy in six weeks and go back to Drist. And, you know, I haven't looked back since.
1: And speaking of Forgotten Realms and, and conceptualizing the story and deciding what events are going to take place involving Drist, not involving Drist, I, I wanted to know kind of how do the powers that be kind of conceptualized? What are they going to be the, the, the next events that take place? in Forgotten Realms, because it it does reach out and extend to Drizzt and and his trajectory. Is it like a creative bike committee where folks like Ed Greenwood and yourself meet together in a dark room over cigars and tequila and figure out what's going to happen? Or uh, is there somebody in charge who decides what direction the Forgotten Realms story is going to take?
2: It has become a very collaborative affair, which is awesome. We have summits. We did a summit for the Sundering, for example. We did a couple of them actually. And, um, I will go up to Wizards of the Coast several times a year, and they'll basically tell me what they what they want to do for their next big story. Because you know they've got a lot of people licensing the realms now and doing computer games, and they want to make sure everybody's on the same page theme wise and kind of the overarching meta story that's going on in the realms for the time period involved. And if I have books set in that time period, or right before that time period, if it's before the time period, I'll say I can put these Easter eggs in to kind of preface it. If it's during the time period, they want to know how I'm going to tie in and what I can do to tie in. And again, this is the icing on the cake. The cake of the personal stories that I need to tell for the characters. If it wasn't that way, I would stop writing, period. Stop writing those characters because I don't want to be dictated. I don't want to be given a a script and say, here, turn it into a novel. Um, I would never work like that unless I was doing a novelization of a movie or something like that. But I'm up there where we work with the game the game designers, the brand people, the other authors, we all get together. We have phone calls, conference calls with everybody involved. And we're all trying to stay on the same page and people add their tidbits. And so if I'm doing something that I know Ed Greenwood might be touching upon in his book or Aaron Evans or Troy Denning, or whomever, I will maybe drop them an email or give him a call and say, hey, you know, I'm going over here. And this is kind of near where you're going to be, with where you said you were going to be, the area you were focusing on. So here's what I'm doing. You know, if if you want to grab a little bit of information for your book, that's fine. So we try and make it a team effort, and it's been working out great. And it's not always like that. I mean, I've been been with TSR and now Wizards of the Coast since 1987, almost continually. I mean, there's been one break for a couple of years in the mid-90s. But other than that, you know, I've seen many, many different regimes come and go there in terms of publishing and editing and coordinating the realms and who's head of games and who's doing this and who's doing that there's been tremendous turnover there aren't very many people there i don't know if there are any anymore who were there when i started it's a lot of years and sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't this and lately it's been working really well so it's been a pleasure to work in that work
0: yeah it'd be awesome to be a fly on the wall and in your meetings oh hell yeah hear what you guys are talking about
2: I have a friend who's a writer and and she was um she was working in television and she kind of retired from that and wants to write some books and she started to write and we were t- we, so I was kind of mentoring her at the beginning and you know because she's a dear friend and she's helped me out a lot too. So I was mentoring her and and we were talking about the creative process and how to work, you know how to get the juices flowing and she does writing seminars and she I've never done any. Where, you know, a bunch of writers get together with a bunch of editors and agents, whatever, and they, they sit down and they work through the creative process in a collaborative way. But I was at one, I was at one of the summits, and I don't think I've ever seen the, the creative juices flowing more than it was this day. And, I mean, people were jumping up out of their seats and running to the <laughs> whiteboards to add things. And I texted her and I said, Erica, I wish you were here right now. You'd learn more than five years of college could teach you about the creative process. It was Unbelievable. And it was so much fun. And and the only thing I can relate it to is if you've ever seen the movie uh, Sound City, it's about a, a music studio. They talk about how music has changed, where now people can do in their living room what they used to do in the studio and what's been lost from that. And so... They're in the studio and they have other people coming in, other artists. I think Paul McCartney shows up, Stevie Nicks shows up, Tom Petty shows up. And they're just riffing off each other in the creative process. And the stuff that comes out of this, this movie is just amazing. It's it's a wonderful documentary about the creative process. And that's what it's like even with writing and world building. When we're all sitting in the room and Ed Greenwood says something and three of us go, yes, and we can do this instead as well over here. And, and it, just, it just goes crazy. And we're all laughing and we have a great time. I... I that's some of my favorite times of the last few years have been sitting in the rooms at Wizards of the Coast and, and just kind of outdoing each other around the table creatively. Amazing stuff. And, you know, you got a guy like Troy Denning who can pull it all together in ways like I've never seen. And you got Richard Lee Byers who sits there and he's really quiet. And then he says something and you all go, Holy crap, yes! <laughs> and um, then me and Rich Baker, when he was up at Wizards, he's not there anymore, but when Rich Baker was there... Rich and I argue about everything. We argue about politics. We just argue. We love arguing with each other because it's a challenge because he's a really smart guy and and I'm nasty. So anyway, um, when Rich Baker and I get going one-upping each other in the creative process, it's it's almost like watching a um, – remember the old card game uh, War
1: where you're slapping cards
2: down at each yeah. other? That's what we're doing, but it's ideas instead of playing
1: cards, and it's so much fun. It's so much fun. Got it. Well, it sounds like it. If you could ever just conference Phil and I in on one of those calls, we would be—we would not be mad about that. Definitely. Like then, Wizards black helicopters would blow you up, and they do have them.
0: (laughs) I like the idea of wizard helicopters, like wizards inside helicopters. There you go. There you go. Um, Shifting from kind of fun, uh, happy moments to dark moments, uh, our our podcast is is mostly focused on a grim dark or a darker style of fiction. Usually has to do with characters that have a grey morality or have to make difficult choices that maybe uh, the typical kind of uh, good or evil doesn't really fit. I think Dritz is an interesting character because he comes from sort of an evil background. Most drow are considered evil and are, are accused of so. He's accused of being evil in several stories. Uh, because of his appearance, so he's been through a lot of dark moments. What would you consider his darkest moment so far, or the moment that he had to make a difficult moral decision?
2: I think it was way back in the books when one of the things that Dritz did when he came out of the Underdark is he kind of made a vow that he would never, you know, he wouldn't attack or kill another Drow. He he was going to lay lay off that. And then the the situation kind of came up where it was a war, and he was on the other side from his own people, and he had to kind of break that vow and, and and that's when he realized how racist his own vow was because he had inadvertently or or unwittingly or naively i is probably the best word elevated the dark elves above like dwarves and humans, and I mean he had killed plenty of humans when when he had to But somehow he had drow special and he didn't even understand that that was his own racism speaking Mm. to him. That these characters had to be fought, had to be, you know, and in battle people die. That's the way it is. And yet he had vowed not to do it. And it just made no sense in the context of of his own demand of other people that he not be treated by the reputation of his race, but by the content of his character. And yet here he was doing the same thing in reverse. And uh, I think that was a really tough time for him. And then the other one was when after Gontelgrim, the, f- the first book in, in in Neverwinter, a book called Gontelgrim, Dritz had lost all these friends and his friends had been his armor because they were all of like heart to him. And these were the people who, who like him, would take an arrow to save each other. They were selfless, they were loyal and true and honorable in every sense of the world. But the whole five of them, the companions of the Hall, now they're gone. And, and the new group of people that he finds himself with include characters like Artemis Centreri and, and Dahlia and a, a strange monk and dwarf who were, had a little bit of the shade in them, if you will, and a, eventually a necromancer, someone who's raising skeletons out of the ground. And, and this is his new traveling group, and he's trying to make sense of it, and you know, he's trying to pull them over to the light, if you will, before they pull him over to the dark. And he thinks he's making progress and everything, and but he finally comes to terms with it and says basically to Dahlia, you know, I just can't do this anymore. And it almost costs him his life. So those two times, I think, one was the, the realization that he wasn't immune to the things he always railed against, that he was as imperfect as the people he complained about. With the racism and then the second time i think it was it was him really appreciating that you know you can't fix everybody they don't want to be fixed and and maybe you should look at yourself sometimes too so those were those were very dark moments for him
0: yeah i think that's easy to relate to uh, especially one, one reason i related to Dritz as a character when i was a teenager was because he had this kind of outcast vibe uh, nobody wanted him anywhere. The the underdark didn't want him, and the above world didn't want him either. So that kind of appealed to me as you know somebody that didn't really have a place. And I, I think a lot of readers may have said the same thing to you. I'm not sure, but oh yeah, um, uh, I think that's that's a big appeal for him. There were two
2: things, he, three. He's misunderstood because of the color of his skin. He's the classic outcast stoic hero not appreciated but understands that it's okay because he's doing what is right and then the third thing is he's not the guy with the biggest sword as much as he is the guy with the biggest heart and that's how i value a true hero and that's who he is and i've had hundreds of letters over the year and emails and pms on facebook from people saying you know i didn't have any friends when i was in high school and this guy was my friend and the companions of the hall became my friends and and thank you for that and um i know what they mean i mean I, I had the same thing, not in high school, but other times in my life where, you know, a book character be- can become a friend.
0: I remember when I was in uh, college, we used to hear this kind of screaming coming from the forest near near our house. I, I grew up in Mississippi, so we, we would hear this screaming and we're like, what the hell is that? And it turned out it was a panther. So no kidding. there was a there was a panther like stalking around the woods. And I thought when I was younger I thought man it would be cool to have a panther you know companion like like Dritz has but then when you actually see a panther <laughs> it's kind yeah, of you're like not a
2: cuddle, are you? <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking a yeah.
0: Yeah, I want to get I want to run away now cuz uh, like panther sounds like a woman screaming like it's it's like <laughs> Really? Yeah, it scared the you know <laughs> crap out of me. So
1: Philip what would you name your pet panther if you were actually able to acquire one? <laughs>
0: Uh, Well, actually, my alma mater, my high school, was our mascot was a panther. So we were called the Pascagoula Panthers. My city was called Pascagoula. (laughs) So maybe I would call him Pascagoula
1: (laughs) the panther. Hey, it's uh, easier to pronounce than (laughs) So, (laughs) Yeah. So, Bob, you definitely have a a legacy under your belt. You've been writing full-time for, what, three decades, uh, about. Um, Ten million-ish books have been – uh published uh, and and purchased no, that's not right. <laughs> somewhere in there um uh, but but no, no doubt. that's not <laughs> so no doubt you've left an impact on on multiple people um uh, through your career and, and many more novels uh, forthcoming from you one fan question that we wanted to include in our conversation today comes from uh, one of our friends in the grim dark Fiction Readers and Writers Facebook group, his name is Joe Martin, um, and he had these comments to share and he had a question for you. Uh, but he said, uh, Bob Salvatore is one of the first authors I ever met in person around 1991. He spent at least 30 minutes talking to me about writing, fantasy, and gaming, and it fueled my inspiration for a long time thereafter. I guess my question would be if he still tries to take time to chat with and inspire young, hopeful writers. I
2: like to take time to chat with everybody, um, not just writers. I, I, you know, Writing is a solitary profession. It's very personal. I spend an awful lot of time sitting at a desk staring at a computer screen. So when I go out on the road like I am now, these book signings mean a lot to me. The idea that someone takes time out of his or her schedule to come out to see me is, uh, it's humbling, and it's flattering, and I appreciate it tremendously. And I remember when I got my fr- one of my first rejection letters, a particularly horrible one, we had a, an author my hometown by the name of Robert Cormier, who did I Am the Cheese, uh, The Chocolate War. I mean, he was one of the most influential young adult writers of the 20th century. And I got this rejection letter, and it was kind of cr- 1984. His phone number was actually in the movie, I Am the Cheese. So I called him up and I had met him, but like at a, you know, a, a high school class or something. I, he didn't know who I was, but he kept me on the phone for two hours and he taught me so much. And he get, he was so generous with his time. And he, and he was like that with everybody in my hometown. He would, he would sit on the board of trustees at the library. He'd go to all the Boy Scout Eagle presentations. He just was like the perfect citizen and he paid everything that had happened to him forward. And I, I just found such inspiration in that. So when I've got someone that comes up to me and they're talking to me. If I'm not listening, that's rude, first of all. If somebody writes me an email, I answer them. If somebody writes me a PM, I answer them. It's the polite thing to do and it makes your own life that much better. I mean, what do I gain by not talking to people? Sometimes these people tell me stories that have me in tears. Sometimes these people tell me things that just cheer me up. If you're not going to experience life, then what's the point of being alive? And experiencing life means other people. And sometimes it's hard for me because I'm kind of an introvert in that I draw energy when I'm alone. You know, for me, doing yoga alone, sitting there is, is how I recharge. Sometimes it's hard for me when I'm out in crowds and stuff. But I fight past that because I know the reward is great. So, yeah, I you bet I do. I try to spend as much time as I can. Now, obviously, it's harder now. If I'm doing a book signing at Gen Con and there's 400 people in the line and I've only got two hours and they're going to close the hall, I really can't sit there and talk to someone for 20 minutes because people are going to get cut out of the line and that would make me insane. So there are times I just can't do it the way I would like to. But yeah, I mean, this is what makes life worth living is is hearing what other people have to say
1: sometimes instead of doing all the talking. Thinking back through the years, is there any maybe one or two fan interactions that kind of stick out as as transformative to you? Oh, absolutely. I
2: got a letter from a, g- a kid in high school way back when this whole thing started. And I answered it because I answer all my letters. And then a few years later, I don't know if you remember when the internet was first coming up, people were taking names of celebrities, if you will, and then trying to sell them back. Yeah. You know, the URLs. And so I got an email from a guy and he said, I own RASalvator.com. And I went, uh-oh, <laughs> uh, you know, this guy's going to try and get me to pay him a ton of money to get my own name. I should have done that. You know, why didn't I do that? Because I didn't know what I was doing. It was the beginning of the internet. Right. And he said, I bought it because I was afraid that somebody else would try to blackmail you with it. And I set up a website for you. And if you just go and look at the website, I'll give you back the URL for free. And it was the kid who I had answered. I had answered his letter from when he was in high school before the internet. Oh. And he and I became friends. And, and, he runs rasalvatore.com. I, I let him keep it because he does such a great job. He does e signings. We just finished one. He was at my house a couple of weeks ago. I see him twice a year. He comes up with his brother in law, Joe and Duff. They come up from Pennsylvania with a van full of books, and we sign them all and package them up and get them out. And it's awesome. And, you know, that's we're, we're friends. We're friends forever. And then the other time was I, I, well, I don't want to go into it because it's kind of a personal story from someone who was going through quite a bit with cancer and probably the most heroic kid I ever met in my life who was going through, you know, really one trial after another and never stopped pushing through it and optimistic and full of life and full of energy and really humbled me as to what a real hero is. But I'm going to leave it at that because that's kind of personal. I don't like to talk about that stuff. It's personal. And then, of course, the soldiers. You meet, you meet the soldiers. I, I make sure I go to a military base every time I'm out on the road. And I know what their families go through. And, and uh, my wife, mil- very heavy military family, my own family, military family. And whether you agree with the politics or the wars or anything, you know, whatever, put all that put all that in the bucket and throw it out the window. Because that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is these people who are willing to make a sacrifice. And I'm not just talking about the soldiers. I'm talking about the the families of them as well. Who are willing to make a sacrifice trying to do something good for their countrymen, for their country, and for the world. And to get to meet these families and be part of these families year after year at places like Fort Lewis, McCord, or Fort Bliss, it is an honor beyond belief for someone like me. And they have touched me in so many ways. You know, when a soldier comes up to you and he gives you his, one of his medals, I mean, you're speechless. I got a flag from Afghanistan that was flown over a base camp there. And they had a picture of the flag flying out of the helicopter. And everybody from the helicopter crew had signed the picture. And they sent me the flag to have framed and put up in my office. It's hard to explain because as a writer, you touch people. And, you know, that's that's the highest blessing you can get. I don't think I'm changing the world. I think some people think they're going to go out and write a book and change the world. I don't ever think like that. But I am thinking that if my work is somehow touching someone else, like like the fan, the guy you talked about, who I spent some time with, if my work is touching someone else, even if it's just that they never read a book until and now they're reading, or if they just need A few hours of escapism and that's all they want out of the books and that's all they get out of the books or if they find a friend in dritz or if they find some moral compass in the characters you create whatever it might be if you are being allowed into someone else's life to touch them a little bit and you are leaving the world a little better than you found it you're doing the best anyone can ever expect to do and you are truly blessed and it just brings such satisfaction and warmth to my life and that's really a rotten speech to give on something called Grimdark, but, <laughs> but it, I feel that. It is, um, you know, I pinch myself all the time and, and I keep wondering when the devil's going to come and collect that, that wager we made or whatever, that, uh, that deal we made. Because <laughs> Why has this happened to me? I don't know, but I'm really happy it has.
1: Thanks for listening to part one of our interview with R.A. Salvatore. You can hear the conclusion of our chat in just one week. Find us at facebook.com slash Podcast or hit us up on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. You can find us on iTunes or Stitcher and be sure to leave a review. We've got two copies of Aria Salvatore's new novel, Archmage, to give away. To enter, just share the show on Facebook or Twitter and tag us to make sure we see the post. Deadline is 9-31-15, U.S. residents only, and one entry per person, please. Brought to you by Wizards of the Coast, and be sure to pick up a copy of Archmage in stores now. Thanks for listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Until next time, stay grim, stay dark, stay true. We'll see ya.